Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lighting the Pipes. This is another one of our Sherlock Select episodes for the summer. We brought these little Sherlock Selects to life just as little buffers, didn't we, throughout the summer for our bigger reads. And this one, today, we're going to look at The Creeping Man, which was a much later story published by Conan Doyle, and it's part of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes. It was published in what year? It was published in 1923. Yeah, it's all coming back to me now. This is The Monkey Man. I got you. <laughs> yeah, the monkey I was, man. I was thinking yeah. of like the crooked man, and then I was also thinking yeah. of the man with the twisted lip. But uh, yeah, that, yeah, this is the monkey man story. Now I remember this now. <laughs> this is the monkey man story, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wasn't Professor... very generous with my no, reading on this, if no. I recall. No, you didn't love this one, but we had a great time talking about it. And I, I, I really, I did reread this story recently. And you know, I maintain that it does have that universal monsters element to it. And you disagree with me in our earlier conversation, and perhaps you still disagree with me. But I, I was really, I was really interested in this one. I know it was a bit, it was a bit silly. Of course, it's a bit silly. It's more science fiction, really, than uh, than, than crime. Very Robert but, Louis Stevenson. Yeah, yeah, definitely elements of you got, that. You got so the Jekyll and Hyde element, and yeah, Professor Pressbury uh, in this story has uh, has a problem, Josh. He's in love with a younger woman and he wants to have what so many older men want, which is that youthful charm and physicality. Good, good youthful charm, physicality. Mm-hmm. I think, that, yeah, staying as uh, vague as possible in that regard is probably the best. <laughs> I think you're right. Uh, yeah, so this story is quite a fun one. It it involves some transformation on on the part of the professor, and um, it, from from human to sort sort of a primitive being. Uh, at least once every nine days, his cycle goes. Um, I, I don't know, Josh. I mean, why, why did I choose this one? I chose this one because I, I found it kind of refreshing, silly but refreshing. And it's it was nice in the later stages where so many ideas have been recycled by Conan Doyle. Um, some improved upon and some just kind of rehashed. But I found it quite nice that we had a father story where the father, the paternal figure, uh, an academic, a man of great learning and great repute, the secret he was keeping wasn't uh, about swindling his daughter out of her inheritance, which we see so much. Yeah, in the that's canon. a bit of a uh, trope almost in Sherlock Holmes these days. Well, I don't know. That and brain days. fever. Brain fever. Yeah, often the two went, you know, hand in hand. Those days, I should say, not these days. Yeah. But the adventure of the creepy man was a fun conversation. We had a good time talking about it, even though we didn't see eye to eye on all aspects of it. I I was really pleased to go back and sort of dig this one out, the story and the episode. And I'm really, really happy here to present it to to our listeners. I I think they'll they'll enjoy it. I think they'll enjoy it. You you did quite a nice plot summary for this one. uh, I recall. Good fun. I was a bit (laughs) tongue-in-cheek. A bit, yeah, a bit more than that. But, you know, in, in keeping with tropes, this story, and I also think, Josh, uh, your story, which you've selected for our final Sherlock Selects, also involves a dog. And um, mm, at the back, uh, yeah, and so I think as a companion piece, or as a lead-in to your selection, which will come in a couple of weeks' time, this uh, this is interesting. Yeah, I think this is a good one. One is This one is sort of like the Universal Monsters, as you said, and the other story is more like a gothic horror. Mm, yeah. We'll uh, we'll wait and see what happens with that one. Indeed. But uh, after our Sherlock Selects break, we're going to be back with uh, an episode on The Quiet American by Graham Greene. That's right. We approached Graham Greene, if you recall, about half a year ago when we did uh, the 
confidential agent. Mm-hmm. Um, still in the mystery suspense genre, so we're going back to Graham Greene and checking out The Quiet American. Um, the only thing I know about it beyond, you know, our bio of Graham Greene that made him an intriguing individual and writer, as well as, you know, our experience reading The Confidential Agent, I knew that The Quiet American was a film with Brendan Fraser and um, Michael Caine uh, mm-hmm. in, the mid, in the early 2000s. So it would be mm-hmm. curious to see. I haven't even seen the film. But um, the fact that Graham Greene wrote a book about it makes me, you know, a bit more interested into it than I was before. So, yeah, it'll be it will be interesting, and we'll 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 be there in September. We think, hey, eh? in September we'll uh, we'll sit down and we'll we'll have a read through that one. A great discussion on that, and carry on with our big reads for the season. Uh, we we hope you're enjoying the season. Uh, thank you very much for listening and for tuning in, and we're really happy to share with you now this episode, which is a a revisitation of the Creeping Man by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which was part of our first season and can be found within the pages of the Casebook of Sherlock Holmes. So enjoy. Yeah, enjoy, guys. And uh, if you enjoy the story or mm. were entertained by it, at least, check out uh, the Traveling Wilburys Tweeter and the Monkey Man. The song might give you a little more illumination, I guess you could say. Here we go. On to the Creeping Man, the adventure thereof. Uh, I got some info here that you might find of interest. Yeah, let's, uh, jump, let's jump into that. I'm curious to see what info you have on this story, to be honest with you. Um, because I March have some ni- questions. I have lots of questions. <laughs> March 1923 in the Strand and in Hearst International. Uh, though it's pretty exaggerated, the plot details and this whole fountain of youth intrigue, which you're going to share... It wasn't too far from medical headlines of the time in Victorian England, believe it or not. This, I mean, you know, there was a time when this was really true science. And, um, I mean, if you, I suppose, depending on how far you want to stretch what the professor does here, people still do stuff like this, right? Like, if, what's a supplement? What's a, a vitamin? You know, weight loss medication, you know, all sorts of stuff. There's precedent for this type of behavior in the story. And maybe it's not that much stranger than the big beefy guy you see at the gym. So we'll get there. But the average Goodread reviews, BFG, is a 3.4 for this story. I've got a two-star review from... This one, I do not think, measures well scientifically, but whatevs. I got... With three stars. It was interesting at first. Then the revelation let me down. A fun read, but better not think about it too much because it's rubbish the more you think about it. <laughs> Four stars. The Adventure of the Creepy Man is definitely one of wow. the more offbeat and fantastical stories of the Holmes canon. With a very strange climax and more questions than you can shake a stick at, this story is something a bit different than the other cases in Watson's lockbox. And... Uh, sounds, like review... was kind of, sounds like he was kind of <clears throat> probably bored with the formula a little bit and this kind of probably perk his interests more yeah and i can see that i appreciate that you know we got to attract all kinds of different readers here don't you one star starts turning into some jekyll and hyde story and it's not a very good one so (laughs) there you go that's a that's that's a review we've got a two a three a four and a one star review there on the average for the creeping man but i'm dying i know our listeners are dying tell me what it's all about bfg 
Well, it's fitting that the adventure of the creepy man begins with a disclaimer from Watson about the strange nature of the case. <laughs> At first, one is under the impression that we're about to have another big scandal involving London Aristos, and due to certain non-disclosure agreements, H&W have to play it like the Warren Commission and keep their lips sealed <laughs> until they no longer have to. Bereft I am, then, forlorn, one could say, when I realize that all the suggestiveness from hype man Watson amounts to, nope, you could not have guessed, a monkey man. Cue the traveling Wilburys. <laughs> We learn from Watson's oiling up that this is one of the last cases he and Sherlock Holmes have ever done before his retirement. And given the events that transpire, that's not surprising. Uh, Watson is approaching his twilight years, taking care of his practice when he gets a telegram from SH. A loyal terrier, or a man Watson heads to Baker Street where he finds Holmes about to be visited by a Mr. Trevor Bennett. Bennett shows up beleaguered by confusion and frustration. He spins his predicament before the great detective. He is the aide of the esteemed Professor Presbury, not to mention the prof's future son-in-law, to his only daughter, Edith. Fair enough. Even the added fact that the sexagenarian prof is engaged to the much, much younger Alice Morphy, a daughter of his colleague, nope, not a typo, it's actually Morphy, not mm -hmm. Murphy. Not exactly ringing the scandal gong either in the early 20th century. Uh, we come to the facts. Professor Presbury disappeared for two weeks after the engagement. He returns looking like a man who has early 20th century version of jet lag. He makes no comment on why he left or where he went to, just goes about his business until the creeping starts. By that I mean actual creeping. Bennett tells the dynamic duo that he was, he was aware of the professor on his hands and knees crawling along the corridor late at night. Bennett, of course, asks the prof what he might be doing such a thing, and the prof gives him rancor for it. To add to the peculiarity, his favorite well-tempered wolfhound is attacking him, and through letters received from the professor's friend Bennett, has learned that it was Prague the professor made an odd pilgrimage to recently. Then shortly after, Bennett is working in the prof's office and perhaps being a little nosy, picked up an ornate wooden box the professor has obviously brought back from Prague, to which the prof notices and goes, ape shit. Intended. Pardon the pun. Yes, intended. Oh, sorry. Uh, Bennett's, Bennett's tirade is pretty briefly interrupted, however, by his fiancée Edith showing up and adding to the insanity with her story about seeing her, seeing her father's head briefly in her bedroom window. Two floors above the ground. Oh, what the F is going on, good sir? I will tell you what's going on, dear listener. Through a series of clues involving envelopes being sent to the professor, from creeping down corridors, climbing the outside wall of respectable estates, and other odd things, we are delivered a yarn that ultimately comes down to the weirdest Viagra commercial ever. <laughs> As a reader myself outside of being a reviewer, I feel it's not necessary to go into the details that ACD throws and with typical formula to justify this ridiculous tale. It simply comes down to a 61-year-old man trying to get it up in preparation for his future matrimonial bliss with a young lady. Okay, trying to turn back the clock with a verifiable, at least in the story world, dram from the Fountain of Youth. You see, Holmes puts all the pieces together because really, don't bother. No virgin reader would have predicted the outcome of this case. <laughs> and determines that the professor, upon hearing about some criminal treatment created by a man named Lowenstein in Bohemia, remember when that place was where scandals came from? I like that better. A treatment derived from the serum, whatever that might refer to, of a breed of monkey known as Langurs. And here, in the weirdest of stories, Doc Watson is amazingly at the top of his game, remembering with clarity Lowenstein of Prague, the inventor of a serum that provides strength and vigor to its user. Only with one side effect, you kind of turn into a monkey. But you'll make it into the, in the sack of younger ladies, just don't start <laughs> picking bugs from her hair. That's a turnoff. Eh, that's all I got, folks. Read it yourself. You'll be intrigued, as I'll, as I'll get out. 
but will it, but you will in no way expect it to resolve the way that it did. The Nutty Professor, indeed. I went as back to Sherlock Holmes' tale, not the prequel to Planet of the Apes. <laughs> That's a good one. Well done. Um, I do agree with the reviewer, though, who, who does find this a little bit spunky, a little bit fun, because it's, it is offbeat. And yeah. it, you know, I found it neat reading it. I, w- I was engaged, and I did kind of... I mean, I didn't predict... No, of course I didn't predict everything, but I did have an idea that this guy with the younger girl was trying to turn back the time. By the way, you want a real laugh, check out the Granada production of this one. Okay, definitely. Yeah, it's it's actually pretty good. Like it's 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 pretty engaging. Um, is it is it uh, now? I, I know this was like in the, from the case book and stuff, but in chronology wise in the series, is it younger Brett or is it older Brett? Yeah, it's it's weird the way they structured those because the case book of Sherlock Holmes, if I'm not mistaken, was filmed before the collection known as the um, maybe that was the last one. Anyway, it's early. In the last, in the latter seasons, does that make sense to you? It's like okay, so kind of before his like very visually obvious decline. Well, yeah, I mean when he was on lithium it, and the, the bloated face and and his you know his yeah. bipolarism and stuff like that. Yeah, he he looks okay in it, but he's he's in the later stages of his Holmes playing. Yeah, just out of curiosity, and um, do you prefer Edward Hardwick or David Burke as Watson? I like Edward Hardwick myself. Yeah, he's a great actor. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um, Elizabeth, uh, the one with uh-huh. Kate Blanchett. Yep. He plays uh, uh, the Earl of Arundel in that in that film. And he's actually oh, has a cool. nice, very significant role. It's on Netflix now, actually. Um, well, on, on, on Canadian Netflix anyways, uh, Elizabeth. So it's a good one to, good to catch up on because, A, it's a great movie. And Edward Hardwick has a great supporting role in the movie. Hmm, didn't know that, but I will. It is a good movie. I do remember liking it. I, I, do, I do like both Watsons. I just like to say that. You know, Burke, Burke was good, too. He was um, a really good, young, vigorous Watson, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, um, uh, Hardwick is a good, older, but, you know, um, steely, I, I guess, Watson. He's a little more emotional, though. I think he's a little, he's a little better, better, uh, he's more of a companion and an emotional friend than I think Burke is. Burke is kind of like the more, uh, not a like raconteur, a, like a, but like a more of an adventurer. Like yeah. a frat brother kind of thing, like an adventurer. Yeah, I, 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 I can see that. It's, it's different ways of doing it. It's like Bond, right? It's mm. different perspectives. That's right. So, okay, our, our pipes are lit. Um, let's let's talk about this one. I've just got a few notes, okay, that I've pulled from my reading. And I don't know that you want, or I don't know if you want to go through and, and make any uh, discussions of quotations or descriptions or anything. But uh, I think what your plot summary laid out was was really quite true. Like, we don't need to go through all of the little bits that lead up to the revelation of this guy having crazy serum from Lowenstein. No, it's just, I just don't think it's worth it. I mean, that's my personal opinion, but yeah. I, I just think this was a silly story. It was a kind of a one-off thing. I think it was, I thought it was fun, I guess, in retrospect, but I was annoyed when I was reading it. I was, I was, I was actually kind of in a kind of sense of anxiety about like, what the heck is up with this guy? Like, is this some kind of weird thing? Like, I'm really curious. I was really curious to see what kind of cultural reference that he would pull and to explain the situation with him. But no, he goes right into like, um, you know, Dr. Jekyll territory. Well, yeah, he does. That's exactly yeah. what he does. Um, well, seeing as we're going to start by talking about our principles, let me read you this little point here uh, from the text. <clears throat> this is Watson uh, speaking about Holmes. 
He liked to think aloud in my presence. His remarks could hardly be said to be made to me. Many of them would have been as appropriately addressed to his bedstead. But nonetheless, having formed the habit, it had become in some way helpful that I should register and interject. If I irritated him by a certain methodical slowness in my mentality, that irritation served only to make his own flame-like intuitions and impressions flash up the more vividly and swiftly. Such was my humble role in our alliance." Now, the note here says that Watson's being too modest. In The Blanche Soldier, generally given the date of 1903 in January, Holmes remarks, Speaking of my old friend and biographer, Watson has some remarkable characteristics of his own, to which, in his honesty, he is given small attention amid his exaggerated estimates of my own performances. Yet, Dorothy Sayers sees more than meets the eye in Watson's assessment of his humble role, and she wonders whether his soliloquy might be a subtle expression here of bitterness at Holmes's treatment of him throughout the years. In Dr. Watson Widower, she observes that Watson seems hurt at being considered a mere convenience like the fiddle and the old pipe to be picked up or cast aside as Holmes's fancy took him. His faithful heart was really wounded. For further evidence, she points to the Mazarin Stone, thought to have occurred in 1903, the same year as The Creeping Man, in which Watson distances himself from his old friend, plunging himself into his practice and bearing, quote, every sign of the busy medical man, end quote. When the call comes, Sayers writes, he answers it, but not quite with the old alacrity. Was it for so trivial a question as this that I had been summoned for my work? He asks himself with a touch of bitterness. Never hmm. before had he resented an intrusion on his work. Hmm, interesting point. Yeah, that's a good point. And so, I mean, so mm-hmm. ladle done to a helping of what you were saying about the two of them reaching their retirement age. Um, you know, it's 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 interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's funny. This was like one of the last cases. I'll point that out. But uh... <laughs> yes, um, I will give you my pipes because I, I mean, in the spirit of brevity, I don't want to. Um, I don't. I don't want to spend too long on too many things, but I'm just going to give you my pipes, and I'm. I'm going to let you talk this one out if it's if it's the same to you. I'll just read you one other point about uh, insanity and the moon, which I found quite interesting as I was reading. Well, that's what I was thinking when you mentioned the moon cycles, right? I was thinking, what is this? Is he going into werewolf territory here now, or yeah. maybe, or or at least maybe lycanthropy? Mm. That's what I'm, I thought he would he would be he would be suggesting. I, I, I was like, wrong. I like the two of them here in the story. They were okay. 3.5. We were chasing a little bit, though, weren't we, in this story? Like, we weren't... Um, this wasn't so much a fair play. We were really chasing to see what it was all going to be about. So, you know, that those are okay stories. Uh, but we don't often get as much time with Holmes and Watson as we would like. No, not like and the last it's, one. It's really example. funny, you know, because, like, right now, concurrently, I'm teaching The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes with my yeah. my class at school and we can talk more about that in our finale perhaps because we'll still I'll still be teaching it but it is remarkable to me Josh just the, the difference in quality of the story writing it's it really is night and day now these are not bad stories you know i mean we just gave one a really high mark but the it's kind of like the texturing i find like the, the filler of these early stories the backstories are much better thought out you know they're they're, yes. they're not just kind of token they they really feel tight um, anyway, sorry, I was going to say something there. I went off track, but yeah, so I like these two in it, but it's, they're just not comparable as a partnership here. You get the nice moments at the beginning, but then there's no nice moments in between. The earlier stories seem to have Watson sitting back and looking at Holmes more and talking to us about him and wondering where he fits in. You get more of the sort of the character 
yeah. at work, you know, ob- observation. And we're meant to believe that Watson never loses his enthusiasm for Holmes and his methods. But these stories don't give us as much Watson meditation as the earlier ones do. No. And I, feel, I feel like as a narrative voice, we need that if we're, do- we're going to continue to buy into the, the, um, the relationship, you know? Yeah, exactly. They were adequate in this story. Mm-hmm. I never really found they had a strong presence uh, because the weirdness of the mystery seemed to take away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll give a point to the idea of Watson and Holmes, though they seem less of each other, teaming up once again before Holmes' retirement. Uh, the little telegram referenced in the pilot episode of Sherlock, if you recall, like, um, if, can, if, if convenient, come at once. Um, oh, or, yeah, yeah. or, or if inconvenient, um, can't come anyway. <laughs> so there was, I, I, so I actually, cause I remember, I remember that and from the show. And then when I finally read the story, it was like, Oh, okay. So that was a nod to that. Um, but I, yeah, that little telegram reference in the, in, uh, was fun. And, uh, they were, it was, you know, and I felt like they were kind of like hilariously straight faced through the whole Bennett interview and the whole, like, and they're very humorous, humorously stoic through the whole, all the further revelations in the story. It might've been like a Monty Python skit in many ways, you know, like, yeah. you know, like, like just John Cleese and, uh, you know, Michael Palin and, you know, just being, just be just being totally straight to this entire procedure where there's like <laughs> monkey men and stuff like that. It's very Monty Python. Yeah. I, I do feel though that being distanced by almost a century from the science of the story and, and the context of, you know, the, the time yeah. when, when these sorts of you know, discoveries are being made and questions are being asked about where in the world can we find this and world travel is just starting to come into into itself in a way that, you know, brings stories. I mean, in the past, it was the empire that brought stories to the Victorian reader. And now it's it's more like the Victorian reader, or sorry, the Edwardian or the, uh, you know, the, the 20th century reader can get out and discover stories for themselves a little bit more easily. And I feel like some of the mystique of... of you know, what's out there for a guy like a professor? Do you know uh, what, what, yeah. what drugs, what kind of things are out there? It's, it's a little bit more, um, more acute, I think. And yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I found that interesting, but <clears throat> I went 3.5 for the principles. Uh, four, I went four for the investigation because I did think it was a, a, a fun story to read, even though it was ridiculous. I did kind of uh, find it I was, fun. I was not generous on it at all, but that's fair. I, I know, I know. But like I said at the outset <laughs> of this story, I kind of agreed with that guy who felt like this is something a little different. So what did you do? Where'd you go? I went 2.5 with the investigation, actually. Um, what's said about the story, the better. I, but I can't deny that ACD hooked me from the get-go and then, and then punked me so bad at the end. Um <laughs> It was unpredictable, but that's all it has really going for, in my opinion. I'm used to pat endings and off-screen comeuppances, but that jump into the island of Dr. Moreau territory was too much of a leap of faith for me. Um, I mean, it's nice that Conan Doyle is hand-waving to Robert Louis Stevenson, his fellow Scott, but... Uh, I thought that was H.G. Wells. Or wouldn't this have to, to Jekyll and Hyde? And, and oh, sorry. Bro- no, Dr. Moreau, I thought, was H.G. Wells. Is it? I thought that was Rebel Lee Stevenson. I, I could be wrong, though. I know Dr. Jekyll was, was Mr. Yeah, Hyde. Jekyll's Stevenson. Oh, you got me doubting it now. I'm going to find out. Keep t- keep talking. Um, the, the case was intriguing, but despite its out-of-the-box ending, I, you know, I kind of found it formulaic and lazy, I guess. I don't know. I gave it 2.5, but I feel your your thoughts about it in, in, in retrospect, but I, I'm, I'm just going to stay with 2.5. Okay, very good. Um, let's see here. I'm just checking it out. Oh, shit. Of course, right? Fucking internet, man. Like, first thing you see is, like, 400 different films. Can't find the goddamn book. Like, it's like, oh, yeah. it's like, it's like what is it? The Simulacrum or whatever? Where are we here? H.G. Uh, Wells. Yeah, he wrote it. 
He did? Yeah. Okay. Well I, I did not know he wrote that story. That's very interesting. I, yeah. I correct myself, and that's perfectly fine. But he did kind of did a hand wave with Dr. Jekyll in this particular story. So I think my statement is still fit. So I'll, I'll yeah. stay with that. So um, let me read this point to you then before I give you the rest of my, my pipes. Uh, the insa Insanity of the Moon. Uh, it's a very short point. It's just to let you know that the word lunatic comes from the Roman belief that the moon affected mysterious changes in certain people, driving them to the point of madness when it was full. Mm -hmm. So there you go. And if the you wanted more information cow. on the monkey, I'm quite happy to give it to you. Oh, the langur? Yeah, on the, on the serum that was used. This is the kind of context I was saying is quite interesting that I think when we read it 100 years later, it's ridiculous. But there's some, there is some basis in what's going on here. Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, you know what? I'll skip over the monkey bit. It's just a description of the monkey. Let me talk to you uh, my last note about Lowenstein then. In investigating Lowenstein's effort, Al Alvin E. Rodin and Jack Key in their medical casebook of Dr. Arthur Conan Doyle comment on the work of French physiologist Brown Sicard who, uh, who somewhat damaged his distinguished reputation by attempting to invent the elixir of eternal youth. In June of 1889, already recognized for having discovered the importance of the spinal cord, Brown Sicard announced, to much sensation in the Parisian and London journals, that he had injected himself with the testicular secretions of guinea pigs and dogs and felt rejuvenated as a result. Among other findings, he reported that he was now able to engage in sexual relations with his new younger wife, whereas previously he had found his capabilities limited. Brown Sicard did not, however, end up prolonging his life in any meaningful way, and Rodin and Key note that injections of water alone have achieved similar results. Even in the decade when The Creeping Man was published, they write, medical fas uh, fadism and quackery included transplanted monkey glands as well as extracts for rejuvenation. Richard Brown expands upon Brown Sicard's results, explaining that his method became known as organotherapy and was recommended in the United States as a treatment for epilepsy, cancer, cholera, tuberculosis, leprosy, and other infirmities. Wow, in, big umbrella. In, in the 1890s, testicular extract sold in New York for $2.50 per 25 injections, with a special syringe costing another $2.50. These were sent by mail to any distance in the USA, complete with directions, Brown reports. Whether or not they were sent in wooden boxes is not stated, but they would not but they would need some form of protection to send glass vials and syringes by mail in the 1890s and would seemed most likely. So, yeah, we're laughing at it, but there's precedent for this stuff. And Conan yeah. Doyle's a doctor after all. You know, he probably knew the work of Sicard and, and was quite interested in how a guy who did such great things with the spinal cord could, could offer quack sort of uh, ideas about rejuvenation, right? Yeah, yeah kind of like, okay, the spinal cord revelation is great. And then he overreached incredibly. Yeah. Well, anyway... <laughs> I f I'm going to finish this off. I went 3.5 for the perpetrator because I found him an interesting guy. And he wasn't really a perpetrator, but uh, 4 for environs because I loved the setting. This was this was like uh, this was like a universal monster story. And I like those films. I like those <laughs> right, films. Right. And I went for it. And this it's got a great supporting cast. At least it's full. you got Trevor Bennett, Professor Presbury, obviously. Alice Morphy, as you've already said. Mercer, the general utility man that Holmes uses, which is cool. Gives us a look at the underworld that Holmes is still dealing with. We've got uh, Dorak, who's the pharmacological contact in London. And, of course, Lowenstein himself, who we only really reveal at the end. But there's a good working supporting cast here. I think it deserves a four from me. So I went 19 wow. out of 25 overall. Wow. So perpetrators, <laughs> the professor, 
the guy who wants to be all youthful for his lady and has the worst late life crisis imaginable. <laughs> Too bad it didn't have convertibles then or Cialis. I gave it to. Yeah, okay. Um, and now that I know that it's monkey spunk, then that's even... <laughs> uh, I don't know. I wasn't really impressed with them. I didn't get that. I, I didn't feel like Bella Lugosi or Lon Chaney was around there or anything like that. Right. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I gave Environs one. I thought it was kind of basic. <laughs> one? Yeah. And supporting cast. One. Yeah. Okay. All right, man. Edith, I really didn't like this story. Can you tell? Um, <laughs> yeah, I can tell. Edith, Edith and Bennett are fun in their frustration and being put out, but they're really just narrators slash plot devices to justify the story. So I gave supporting cast. Give me your thoughts on the supporting cast. I'm thinking about, you know, about Mercer and stuff like that. I'll raise it to a three. Okay. What did you give to uh, the, the, the perpetrator? Two. Jeez, <laughs> oh, how can you give the environment a one? Like, you, uh, gave, you gave the environment of the Marazon Stone, uh, like, a higher score than that. Oh, anyway. did I? Yeah, anyway, let's see, let's see. Four and two is six, and two is 8.5 and three. So you're at a 12. Okay, you're 12. That's a fail for you. This story is a, is a fail. Yeah, uh, no, I, I'm not going to fight that. I'm, I, I agree with okay. you 100%. Well, in, well, look, then in that case, let's not waste any more time on it. We still got four to go. Pick <laughs> door number one or door number two. Maybe you'll enjoy the song more. <laughs> if it's Traveling Wilburys, maybe. Uh, one. Door number one, okay, you have picked a great one. It's a classic. Uh, the Searchers, you may not remember them, but we weren't alive when they were popular from 1963. This is called Love Potion Number 9. Ooh. I took my troubles down to Madame Rue. You know that gypsy with the gold cap too. She's got a path down a pretty floating vine. Selling Right, so there he is, Professor Presbury, drinking his love potion number nine all the way good from choice. Prague. <laughs> I have heard that song before. Yeah, that's a good tune. That's a good tune. <laughs>